when lawmakers don't acknowledge the trade-offs that come with regulation. You know, there's a lot at stake and people working in trust and safety teams really understand that very deeply. This is Click to Trust, a podcast that delves into the intricate challenges of protecting online communities. On February 17, 2024, the Digital Services Act will go into effect. This is the latest in a series of new pieces of legislation around the world, designed to hold online platforms more accountable for the content, oftentimes user-generated, that they host. But could increased government regulation hurt freedom of expression on the internet? In these first episodes of click to trust we'll seek to answer that question. And we'll start with Tom Siegel's perspective on what created the need for legislation like the Digital Services Act in the first place. The, the reason why we're seeing an increase in regulation is because platforms have not been able to do their job independently well. So at the core, I think it's something that is needed to create a safer online environment. Using parallels to other industries, government standards can provide a really good foundation. It provides minimum standards in the absence of the industry providing them themselves, but also assuming that it's done in democratic countries. There's arguably more commitment to the public good and to the accountability that elected representatives have for the actions that they're taking. Private Social media platforms are not democratic. You know, they have a chief executive or board that makes final decisions. A CEO in most of these large companies is, is a male and middle-aged male, right? So we also don't get a lot of diversity. And so I would argue that generally a democratic system leads, can lead, should lead to, to better results. Thirdly, government standards can create a consistent and presumably more transparent framework on set of rules as well that individual platforms do not have to commit to. So these are, again, they're not even specific to online safety regulation, general reasons why governmental regulation standards could be a really good thing. The problem is in this specific case is that governments regulating speech, particularly in a democratic society, is a really difficult tricky and risky thing. A foundational right uh, of a free society is that people are able to speak their minds, obviously within reasons. And the moment that governments try to curtail that, I think it raises a lot of flags and you know, questions for checks and balances. We also know that in the online speech area, there's a lot of nuances of enforcement that require domain expertise to get it right. You know, how exactly do you find, define a scam or someone getting harmed online? And then how do you actually interpret this when you actually go through this content trying to decide if you remove it or, or not show ads, for example. And so there's a lot of domain expertise required in getting this right. And elected representatives, you know, have a lot of different topics to deal with in addition to just, you know, this one. And so often that domain expertise is missing. And lastly, or thirdly, and there's many other talks we could talk about here, it's a super fast moving field. You know, we see new technologies emerging, the ways technologies are being used is changing. The type of topics and what people talk about and engage with online is changing all the time as well. Regulation is rightfully slow uh, because we want it to be deliberate. And we don't want there to be any negative consequences from it, particularly in areas like speech. But it doesn't really match well with the fast-moving nature of the internet and, and online speech. Yeah, I think you said something really interesting, which is that these technology organizations, they're not democratic. So that changes a bit of the argument of like, okay, free speech is a cornerstone of democratic nations, but if tech companies are not, what does that mean? It's such a political issue while at the same time being really hard not to want to create some sort of restriction when it comes to, not restriction, but ultimately what we are trying to do is create a safer online environment. The only way to do that is to have some sort of content moderation, especially with 
how fast things are moving, as you said, especially with AI gen content, how do we solve this issue? Is it just like a paradox we need to manage or is it a problem we can solve? It's definitely a challenging one. We're not the only industry that's facing it. I mean, there's, you know, you have a, we've had a media industry for a long time in all parts of the world and things have not come to a halt. From my perspective, the best option is industry standards that are set by a variety of, of different partners from researchers and academic institutions. Certainly elected representatives you know, should have a strong voice in the platforms themselves. We have many examples, like in the US, there is, for instance, the Motion Picture Association of America that is regulating ratings for movies. So what age someone has to be to watch a certain movie that might contain kind of objectionable content for kids, for example, right? But, you know, there are also certain standards where the public safety is so important where the regulatory agency, which is a government agency, will just decide top down. If you are, you know, building nuclear power plants, you should be under the oversight of a regulator who can tell you and what they think is, is safe or not. But online, I, for online content, I do believe industry standards set by a group of independent stakeholders with different perspectives is, would be the right way to go. To gain a better understanding of the impact of legislation like the DSA, I spoke with Ben Whitelaw, a journalist and co-founder of Everything in Moderation, a weekly newsletter focused on content moderation and all things trust and safety. In our interview, Ben spoke about the catalysts for online safety regulations and stressed the need for balance between government oversight and granting platforms some agency for self-regulation. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I'll give you a quick intro for our listeners. Ben Whitelaw is a journalist and media consultant who has worked for The Guardian, The Times of London and the European Journalist Centre. I wanted to chat with Ben today as he is the co-founder and editor of the newsletter Everything in Moderation. Everything in Moderation is the intersection of content moderation, law, and policy all around the world, and one of the few publications dedicated to trust and safety. I'm so happy to have you here today, Ben. Ben, as a journalist, you have a unique point of view when it comes to all things online safety. What has surprised you the most in the realm of online safety regulations, especially in the last couple of years? I think there's three, three things I'd say that probably spring to mind here when it comes to regulation and, and my charting of it over the last five years that I've been writing the newsletter. The first is that the the speed of regulation, the speed at which it takes place is very different from kind of jurisdiction to jurisdiction. If you think about how the EU's Digital Safety Act took place, you know, that has been probably two years really in the making. It was dreamed up in kind of 2019 and then passed in, in 2022. And if you compare that to, for example, the Online Safety Bill, that was much longer. You know, there was a white paper uh, around the same time, but it took kind of almost 18 months more than the DSA to be passed, and it's still not enforceable now. So I think the time that it's taking for this regulation to be passed is really interesting. I think it demonstrates that online speech is inherently political, and that different countries and different states take different views on how important it is, um, which obviously means that it gets kind of wrapped up in political discussions and changes to parliaments as well. The second thing I'd say is that, you know, there's a huge amount of people involved in passing this regulation. And maybe this is me not really understanding how laws get passed, but paying close attention to kind of online safety regulation, it's really brought home to me the fact that there are so many groups and people and kind of lobbyists involved who want to have their cause reflected in the final legislation, which can make the process slow, as I already mentioned, and also quite challenging. So again, if we take the online safety bill here as an example, it's something that I'm most familiar with based here in London. You know, there were child safety groups who were obviously leading the cause, but there are also groups campaigning against the trolling of women there were consumer groups thinking about spam and, and fraud. There were religious groups fighting against hate speech. There were groups that came in at the last minute looking to have uh, self-harm and, and eating disorders added to the bill. So there's all these different groups that have uh, a say 
and it's a really difficult task and, and really dem is demonstrated in the fact that there is you know it's hundreds and hundreds of pages long there's a lot of thinking that goes into what actually makes the final piece of legislation and not everyone is happy and then the final thing i'd say is that there are threads that have been running through regulation that was passed back in 2018 which we're still seeing now it's interesting that there is not a huge amount of change if you look back at the German legislation that was passed, I think in 2018, Net DG, which is now being superseded by the DSA, but there were some kind of ideas in there that up, that have been kind of exported into other legislation around the world, places like Indonesia and Pakistan, rightly or wrongly. And there are also ideas in there around kind of large fines for platforms, a focus on transparency, which we're also seeing in the DSA, in the Online Safety Act and in other legislative processes as well. So it's kind of interesting that the similarities persisting in those, we have, I think, evolved some of our ideas and it's not all the same, but I would say that that's been interesting to note as well. There's not a lot of change, it's evolution rather than kind of revolution. So yeah, just three kind of ideas, you know, the, the speed of legislation, the amount of people involved, and then the kind of continuity in some aspects. You mentioned that you feel it's more an evolution rather than a resolution. But do you think there was at some point a catalyst that accelerated these laws coming into fruition now? Yeah, I think there's a number of kind of real life events that you can point to, which catalyzed, as you say, the push for regulation. And it, it's different in different countries, I would say. I think that 2016, you know, US election, the Cambridge Analytica scandal around the same time, Brexit here in the UK, which obviously involved the Europe, and then kind of smaller, I guess quite powerful stories of, of people who were affected by internet harm, such as Molly Russell, the young teenager in the UK who watched videos of self-harm and suicide and herself committed suicide. You know, her father and family have gone to campaign for safety regulation as a result of that and, and her cause has really come been a, been a, one of the major reasons why regulation has, has kind of evolved in the uk particularly so i think there are kind of broad stories that we see and then these kind of isolated incidents in probably different countries which lead not just the public but also industry bodies and experts to believe that regulation is necessary you speak to a lot of different people in online safety in different industries what have been some of the views around these developments, either positive or negative, that you've seen? I would say that the subscribers to the newsletter and the people I speak to probably fall into kind of four or five different buckets. There are people working in trust and safety in platforms. There are academics and researchers. There are people working on kind of technology solutions. There are folks working in government. And then there are a few people who are uh, maybe more layman, more, more general public folks who are also interested. And I would say that across all of those different groups, the feeling is broadly the same, which is that the internet is now at a stage where regulation is required. And that's quite interesting to me. They all have different reasons for probably thinking that, but it, it, it's very unlikely, very rare, I'd say, that people say that, that there isn't a case of regulation. So even across those very different groups, that is something that I'm seeing. When it comes to kind of whether there's a positive or negative feeling towards regulation, I think what particularly experts working in, in platforms and, and technology providers who are kind of adjacent to those platforms, what they really get frustrated by is when lawmakers kind of don't acknowledge the trade-offs that come with regulation. You know, there's, there's a lot at stake. And people working in trust and safety teams really understand that very deeply. They're living it day in, day out. And when a lawmaker fails to identify the privacy or possible limitations in speech the regulation could have, that is something that I, I hear is a frustration for them. It's not straightforward, and sometimes lawmakers make it seem like it is. The education of lawmakers as to the, the gray areas and the trade-offs of online speech is something that I'd love to see um, more of in 2024 and beyond. Talking about the general public, there is also, I would say, a consensus there among the need for regulation. As you say, people have individual stories that come to mind, people who have suffered harms in various guises. And I think, you know, 
broadly across particularly the US, the UK, and Europe, there is a concern about the effect of particularly social media on political engagement and speech. I think there was a poll last year um, in which 10,000 people were surveyed and that kind of support for regulation was actually kind of bipartisan broadly as well. So both Democrats and Republicans felt like regulation was necessary. You mentioned that there is a certain amount of frustration by trust and safety teams because regulators don't really get the whole picture. Do you have any specific examples of things that regulators should be educated on or need to understand about trust and safety work? I think it's really difficult to do and, and lawmakers typically just see media coverage and they speak to perhaps representatives on the platforms. And so they don't actually end up speaking to folks on the front line who understand the trade-offs and, and, and how it works. So, you know, I, I really like the work being done by certain groups like the Integrity Institute who are trying to bring those trust and safety experts out from beneath the, the covers of the platforms and try to bring their expertise into the fore and help them educate people as to really how to, to go about regulating the industry as a whole. It makes sense. And in the end, it will only create a safer internet if these groups work together, right? Which actually leads to my next question, which is what are your views on the subject, do you think the, the DSA, the OSA, and other regulations have any teeth? Are they going to help make the internet safer, in your opinion? Broadly, it very much depends on, on where you sit here. And I, I try to be as impartial as possible in, in terms of covering both sides. I think it's really too soon to understand whether the obligations uh, introduced on all of these platforms and, and other intermediaries because uh, it's not just the big platforms that, that often we talk about. It's it's anyone kind of receiving user-generated content. You know, whether those obligations will benefit users by reducing harm, we just don't know that in a lot of cases. What I will say is that in, in terms of teeth, um, you know, that this it's a bit like going from having no teeth whatsoever to dentures. It's kind of a wholesale change in a short space of time. And what I mean by that is that really there was nothing prior to the DSA, you know, nothing prior to the Online Safety Act. In Europe, you know, the DSA updates a piece of legislation that was passed in, I think, 1999 or 2000, the Commerce Directive, which didn't allow lawmakers in the European Parliament to do anything really with regards to harms on the internet. Similarly, the Online Safety Act, I don't think there was you know, any significant precedent there. There was really other pieces of law that, that tried to hold platforms to account and, and with difficulty. So now there is this increased liability. It will be really interesting to see how that pans out. I think it is too early to say, like I mentioned, but we will probably have a sense by the end of 2024 how that is evolving. And if you were to kind of you know, push me on it. I'd say this is a kind of a, a good first step. You know, it's a kind of better than nothing to continue the teeth analogy that there will probably be teething problems and there will probably be challenges and difficulties that the regulators of the legislation will have to 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 tackle. Yeah. What about freedom of speech? There's a few groups online who are they're a bit scared that these new regulations are going to stifle it in a way people see the internet as like this free world where everybody can say and do whatever they want obviously according to the laws of the real world and we know like some of them are pretty obvious you know like harming children terrorism all of those things but there is an argument to be made about freedom of speech what are your views on that and what have you seen i mean for as long as the internet has been around users of websites and apps and platforms have been governed by terms of service and those terms of service have always included some form of moderation you know there is an incentive for companies to create an environment where other people want to spend time and contribute their opinion right so we know that there's a link between kind of well moderated spaces and engagement and people coming back you know there's a reason why certain apps and sites the likes of parlor um you know have a relatively small user base because yeah. the speech there is not something that that you know 
enough people want to be around. So there's always been terms of service and there's always been that uh, need to create a kind of condition, an environment where people can participate. I think the, the strength of view from free speech campaigners as to certain regulation does worry me. You know, I think that there is justified concerns there and especially around things like privacy. We saw, you know, Meredith Whitaker from WhatsApp in the couple of months before the Online Safety Act was passed and making a lot of really good points around the concerns, you know, the effect that it might have on, on privacy, people's privacy and access to data. So I think that that does concern me a little bit. It obviously could lead to the over-policing of content by platforms. And generally that impacts people who are particularly marginalized and whose speech is limited already. So the, there is a scenario in which we, we might see that happening and we're probably unlikely to be able to pick it up until a point where that is reported out through the processes that the regulation um, kind of insists upon. And then by then, in some ways, it's too late. It could be months past that point. So we're only going to pick up these issues if they do arise after the fact. And, you know, again, that is concerning. The other point to make here is that we're not just talking about one piece of regulation that governs the whole internet, obviously. We're talking about different countries and different states creating a patchwork of online regulations, which is going to make it really challenging for platforms to to provide service in a way that they used to. If you're a, a kind of social media platform based in San Francisco, you, you're, you're not just thinking about the US. You're not just thinking about even certain states and there are lots of different states who are looking to bring regulation in you're thinking about the whole world and if you've got users in in different countries you're going to have to be able to ensure that you're compliant in those areas as well in those countries as well it's like a puzzle with a thousand well million pieces really and you know if you're working in a trust and safety team it's i know it's difficult for them to keep up to speed with what are the regulations that have been passed what's coming down the line and what are the obligations for each of those and how do they interact with each other? Who should be putting together the pieces of this puzzle? Like who should be the groups in charge of keeping the internet safe? Trust and safety teams, regulators together? Is there a group we're not mentioning right now? What are your views on that? People who are pro-regulation would probably say that for a long time, social media companies and other intermediaries have been able to self-regulate and have done a bad job of that. And I would probably agree that it, it can't just be the social media platforms um, on their own deciding how they govern themselves. I think the the increasing role of government in doing this is, is broadly good. It's hard for them to keep up to speed with the, the, the nature of change on the internet, the speed at which, you know, apps and services emerge and disappear. I think we're probably approaching a point where we have the right balance between self-regulation, where platforms decide what their policies are, and then the processes of moderation are audited basically by government through laws. That has been a good thing, I think, is that the focus of legislation has been on the moderation processes, how many people you have, what is the kind of typical takedown times, you know, who do you have in different countries? What languages do they speak? But this is about the how and not the what. It's not focused on content, broadly speaking. So I think we're approaching that point where we're, we're going to see if that's a, a good balance and a good combination of actors in how we decide how the internet is regulated. Yeah. Beyond that, I haven't got a clue. How do you see these regulations evolving given the rapid speed at which we're seeing like the technology evolving with AI, Gen AI, all of that. And how do you see regulations evolving in the face of that? And what impact do you hope they will have on both users and providers of digital services? Uh, I'm kind of nervous about looking too far into the future since there's so much <laughs> about now that we don't really know. But I think it's safe to say that we're going to see much more regulation. We're going to see countries follow the EU and the UK and and the US in coming up with 
legislation that that tries to figure out how to maintain safe environment for users online i think that increase in legislation is going to be driven partly by governments looking to control the internet as well which is obviously a concern and we shouldn't presume that governments are always uh, good or thinking of their citizens in the right way so my worry here is that the, that will be used, you know, legislation will be used as a kind of uh, controlling mechanism on the internet. So I think we can predict more of it. I think the complexity of it will only increase. Seeing in the US, the likes of California try to kind of come up with their own legislation. Other states are doing the same. You know, what happens if you've got 50 different forms of legislation in just one country? That started to happen in the EU where Austria and Germany and France had their own versions. And then that was the kind of impetus for the DSA. As that complexity increases, maybe we'll see a consolidation in the US too. But, you know, it's it's really too soon. All we know, I think, is that there'll be a greater push for it. It's going to be incumbent on kind of civil society and nonprofits to ensure that it's going in the right direction. It's going to be really key for organizations who've already fed into the process uh, via various means and others as well who haven't probably yet engaged in it to ensure that governments are doing so in the right way. Of course, the Digital Services Act will affect more than major platforms like Facebook, Twitter or Pinterest. To gain insight into what this will mean for smaller platforms and companies, I spoke with Trust Labs co-founder and CPO Benji Loney. So, Benji, I'll first ask you to give a little bit of a bio on yourself, who you are, what you do. So, a uh, bit of a bio, long-time trust and safety guy. I led trust and safety at YouTube for a number of years, policy, product, different ap- operations aspects and teams, as well as a TikTok for a while outside of China, helping launch them shortly after the Musical.ly acquisition. And uh, Reddit for a stint as well. And here at Trust Lab, I lead our product policy and operations teams. Can you explain to our listeners what the Digital Services Act is? The Digital Services Act is the first of many regulations of its kind. It is a extension of some proto regulations and some very early regulations like NetCG that we saw come through in the last few years. Uh, and it's the beginning of many more. And what it is in its essence is a regulation that states that you must remove illegal content online when it is reported to you, and it's harsh. And uh, that illegal content is essentially user-generated content that you will now have to be obligatorily compliant on how you remove it, how long it takes you to remove it, how you're uploading that data to the central regulators uh, or country level regulators, and then many, many details around the types of messaging, the types of appeals processes, um, transparency reporting obligations. Um, But all of those things are kind of a container around for the first time, you're going to actually have to remove this stuff and report on it in a very transparent way. And so this is something that many of the largest platforms have been doing for a long period of time. And legal removals requests are also very common for the largest platforms. But for smaller platforms, this might be some of the first times they're dealing with these types of requests from a regulator or from end users. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's what it is. So it's some folks from larger platforms might be more familiar with the direction that it's headed, but there's lots of details around how to implement that on a platform that that make it a little bit tricky. So what have you felt has been the reaction of some of these smaller platforms? Do they feel like it's coming for them or not? It's a mix. Certainly we've seen some smaller platforms that deal with controversial areas or issues where maybe they've had some run-ins with an app store in the past, or potentially they deal with a regulated area of the world, such as short-term rentals or renting a car or things where there's real user-to-user interactions. Those folks are already in a controversial space. And I think they very much feel the pressure of this regulation is likely to come down and and focus on them. Whereas there's other folks that are maybe more on the margin. Maybe they haven't had controversial content issues in the past, besides those that have maybe been internally escalated. But those folks are often taking kind of a wait and see approach. Is this going to hit me 
as a platform? Is the regulator going to come down hard on us? And how, how will that look? And so we see a lot of those folks are um, just starting to wake up to this regulation. They're just starting to get prepared for it. And in many cases, they're scrambling now because of how prescriptive compliance does look for these things to have solutions in time for the February deadline. So it's it certainly we've seen folks push off this, the smaller platforms push off this question for a lot of the last year. And now a lot of activity around folks saying, oh, this does seem to affect me. What do I need to do to get minimally compliant? But certainly the platforms who have had some issues or run-ins with the complexities of online communities in the past and online content in the past, they're no strangers to this and, and they're certainly aware and, and getting ready for it uh, rapidly. What would those smaller companies have to do before February 17th? I'm sure it's a long list of things, but yeah. what advice would you give them? We actually have an excellent checklist up on our website um, that folks can peruse through and that's the legalese has been removed from it. So it's very uh, candid and transparent for the list of things that one might have to do to be uh, compliant. But there's several things. Some of this has to do with advertising transparency. So there's a whole section around that if you do run online ads. There's a section around online traders. So if you are a marketplace and you do have businesses on your platforms, how you mediate between those actors, how you're running background checks, et cetera, on them for the legality of them to be able to operate in, the, in those markets. There's some regulations around having local representation within uh, the EU or where you're doing business. And so, you know, having a law firm or someone set up to help represent you within the EU is important. And then there's this whole big messy hairball around reporting and processing illegal content, enabling appeals and user communications, doing that in a transparent and somewhat localized way, such that users both trusted flaggers that are part of the online community of NGOs and civil society organizations can easily report content using their expertise, as well as your normal users can report stuff through your platform. So all of the data logging around that, the production of a transparency report around that, the enabling of appeals uh, over a many month period, and then smaller details that you know, you're unlikely to need to have for the exact maybe deadline of February 17th, but how you deal with recidivism bad actors of coming back and uh, abusing your flows, things around automation and scalability so that you're not inundated with these complaints, um, reporting back to the centralized DB, the, the statements of reasons, essentially the, the transparent reasons of why you're removing these things. There's lots of these other checks uh, that you might not need on February 17th on the date that this, that, that this hits, but you're very likely to need it in the coming months uh, afterwards, and particularly if there is scrutiny being placed on your platform, you'll need it real quick. Uh, so this is the, our take on it. The mechanism is really important to have in place on the deadline, the ability for users to report this content. But some of these other things like the transparency reporting or the integrations with the centralized DBs, that can probably wait a little bit. Summary, if, it, if you are listening to this yeah. and the date is here or past, there's aspects to this that you really should be scrambling, the very publicly facing aspects of this that you should be scrambling to get live um, and how you're processing these things, the data storage, the eventual transparency reporting, et cetera. So those less user facing aspects, you probably have a little bit of time to get those things right, but highly recommend that you do get the public user facing ones as soon as you can. Great advice. So how will this be regulated? How are they going to be let's say I'm doing air quotes for those who are just listening, caught by the DSA? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I don't know that the, the regulator fully understands this themselves. Also, it's at a country level for anyone who's smaller than the largest platforms. And so every country is going to have their own way of thinking about this problem and which platforms they're going to be focused on, which segments of platforms they might be focused on. I think we're going to see some Big fines, some fireworks around the largest platforms out of the gate. We're already seeing some of that against X that is uh, yeah. noteworthy. And shortly thereafter, we'll see against some high risk, medium and small size platforms. I'm sure some scrutiny in the coming months, maybe some fines or just a, a quick pull up your socks, nasty message to some of those platform owners to, to get a little bit more proactive with some of this stuff. We'll see how that shakes out. But those two segments, 
will likely come out of the gate hot. And again, it really much depends on a country level. Anything that's illegal anywhere in the EU can be brought underneath this regulation. And so there might be specifically litigious states that have a bee in their bonnet around a specific issue. And if that issue is live on your platform, they can absolutely bring that to your local regulator or a flagger can bring it up and, and make that a problem for you. So I think we'll see a big diversity with different states caring about different issues, different states, some of them being more litigious than others, uh, more uh, happy to be reporting content than others. And there's this whole realm of these user complaints that can be brought to out-of-court remediation and settlements, which really incentivizes monetarily folks to go out and find this content and, and make an issue of it maybe for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the real wild cards here is how much is that picked up? It's not traditionally something that's happened before. And now that it can happen and there is an incentive to do it, if that explodes, it could really make uh, a large volume issue of these. Specifically, as you see, society and culture sometimes be more polarized. Uh, there's more incentive for people to go and find issues and, and really lean on them that align with their own uh, online perspectives and issues that they care about. So it's very likely that some of those groups are going to grab a hold of this and, and, and likely to use some of these reporting mechanisms to make a statement about the issues that they really care about. So that's how like, there will be a user enforcement side of this. There will be a regulatory side enforcement of this. Regulators are probably going to focus on the biggest platforms and the medium-sized platforms with higher risk vectors associated to their own local issues that they care a lot about. So if you've heard from local regulators in the past, that's almost certainly going to heat up in the coming months. Wouldn't it only be trusted flaggers who are able to take these complaints to court? Or is it any user? Any is user. that going to create a huge wave of... Couldn't that create a big problem? It very well could. So many years ago, I started the trusted flagger program at YouTube, which I believe was one of the first in the industry of this trusted flagger concept. And something that we saw very early on is that when you incentivize users, even just by giving them a feedback loop to let them know the actions that have been taken on their content and making them feel heard, their volume can go up by an order of magnitude very rapidly. And so we don't know what this will look like under the DSA exactly from a volume perspective, because it is unprecedented in many ways. But based on other trusted flagger experience in the past, yeah, if you give people a clear target and either a monetary uh, incentive or a platform to get their message out publicly, either of those things can and may likely create a very large volume of complaints in this category. And so that could be anything from copyright through to illegal child safety issues, online sales of drugs and goods, animal cruelty-related causes. It could be local folks complaining about short-term rentals or whatever other issue that is. Uh, but there's tons of things that uh, can be illegal across this market for many different reasons and lots of very motivated group who are not trusted flaggers who still very much do want to get the word out yeah. here or maybe would be interested in the financial incentive. So it's very probable that this will pick up. For companies that are medium or small that are scratching their head, they're like, I'm not sure if I have to be compliant. Yeah. How could they, Are there, is there a set of questions they could ask themselves yes. to know if they should be taking the steps to be ready? Absolutely. And the regulator here has actually been pretty good in laying some of this out on their website. If you go to uh, our blog as well, we have a series of questions laid out for you to help classify yourself. Again, absolutely no commitment to us whatsoever to use that. It's for your own use and perusal. So you know, feel free to go and, and, and look at that and, and that'll get you very in depth. But the TLDR is if you're hosting content or if you are actually providing that content across time, helping people discover that content, in either of those scenarios, you'll have a lot of exposure under the DSA. There is still exposure for folks who are like the, the dumb pipes of the internet, who are just uh, con conveying data from one place to another instantaneously, not storing it. There are still some requirements for those folks, but much more onerous for, for folks who are hosting and then even more so for this online platform category of, uh, of platforms who are maybe the more marketplace-y platforms that you know more about or maybe more consumer oriented. 
But yeah, the TLDR is, there's really good data out there. We have some great information on our website on this. Uh, but if you do have content that comes through users or comes through professional channels that you even go and acquire and put onto your website that you don't have perfect knowledge of what's actually in that content, um, you're responsible for that. And you must have these flagging and reporting mechanisms. If it's hosted, i.e. if you keep this permanently on your site or semi-permanently, you allow people to come back to a link and see it again. Again, there are obligations uh, for you. And then if you allow people to share it or discover it on your site, this online platform component or capability, then there's much more onerous requirements for you as well. If you do not do those things, maybe you have less exposure. So the types of websites that are maybe syndicating low volumes of content and have humans reviewing all of that content before it goes live onto their platform. But I think one of the important things to flag for those use cases too is historically you would have been responsible for all of that content. You'd be taking on that legal notice of saying, yes, I, I do know all of this content. But many folks, even in their toss, have written in, we're not responsible for any of the content on our site, right? Like we explicitly they'll have in there, even if they are in this PGC category or low volume acquired content that they're syndicating, et cetera, they'll often have written into the legal documents that they're not. And so this is where I think people could get stuck too, is, you know, your teams might be saying, oh yeah, of course we have knowledge of all of this content, but you might also want to be taking advantage of these safe Harbor, or we don't have perfect knowledge of these content laws. And that's going to bite you in this situation and, and maybe yeah. be unaware to you. So recommend that you look through those docs. You will have more responsibility if you have perfect knowledge than you have under the DSA. The DSA actually provides you lots of safeguards against like safe harbor-esque safeguards where you're not responsible for illegal content that you don't have notice of. And so if you are claiming notice of it and you're saying the DSA doesn't apply to me, just be careful because... That can also put you in a tricky spot of of maybe more liability for these edge case gray area spaces. Mm -hmm. So advice would be probably if you're unsure, round up, you know, go on the safe side. Yeah. There there are some expensive parts of DSA compliance, uh, but uh, there's many solutions out there. Trust Lab having one of them, and there's probably one that fits your needs from a third party as well. Then building all this stuff in house. Mm -hmm. And uh, recommend you have a look because there's there's many ways to address this solution that can both reduce your liability and, and that are fairly cost effective. What would you say to people who are raising concerns about privacy, freedom of speech because of these new online regulations, not just the DSA, but there are online regulations popping up all over the globe and some people are concerned? It's a concern. There's no doubt that this is a concern. I think the online world of moderation is tricky and there's different feelings for different people about what's the right thing for their societies, for their nations, for their communities. And thankfully, a lot of the regulation that we're seeing, especially as it pertains to things like the DSA, they're pretty smart. Like mm -hmm. These are well-educated, deep background individuals who've thought this through. And so they have provisions for illegal content, which has always been illegal, but maybe under-enforced in some of these regions, or TOS, which is the subjective things that platforms can decide to do. And what this regulation really does is it, it makes crystal clear the line around illegality and the transparency of those things, which frankly, a lot of the concern for online moderation in the past is people take actions, they ghost content, they do all of these techniques that are very murky. And that censorship without transparency is truly a slippery slope. And so by creating transparency around the illegal content, the actions on it, actually, I think it, it's a step forward in, in what's already happening, but now it's observable. On the toss side, it's a similar story. Platforms still have all the latitude they want to enforce their toss however they want to do it, right? Uh, but now they're obligated to enforce it. And that, again, has been a historically tricky thing where you enforce in some situations where it's convenient and others you may not. So that favoritism or, again, opacity of how those rules, that's getting better under some regulations. There's also regulations that will be proposed and I'm sure will be coming out in certain countries that are not so well thought out that maybe bias against political parties or you know, create an incentive to remove much more content than platforms might have historically. And those are worrying 
for sure. And my advice would just be have a voice, get out. You know, now is when these regulations are being shaped. Now is when you have a potential um, platform to shape these in their proto state. So get out to your regulators, vote, um, help shape through democracies that you live in what you want to see in, in the real world. And if you don't live in a democracy and you're coming out with some of these regulations, you know, you also have uh, an, a platform and an ability to influence these things as they come out. I think it's very important to do that um, because once these things are live, um, it will be harder to change them and they're more malleable now than they, than they will be later. So highly recommend, you know, get out, use your voice, but the good ones in, in a, a lot of the ones that we're seeing come through, they do seem to be very highly indexed on transparency towards end users. And that should just make things better for end users rather than, than worse. Net, net. I really wanted to get your opinion and your views as somebody who's been in this industry for a while and you've been through a lot of the companies that helped shape what is happening right now. It seems like there are these different regulations they're coming out of different jurisdictions. You have the DSA, the Online Safety Act in the UK and Australia. There's local laws in the US, but they all seem to be cropping up at the same time. Like, what led to this? What was the, what's the nominal effect here? I have my own opinions on it that I can pontificate on, but I'm sure there's much smarter people than me that have better opinions. <laughs> but I mean, my own opinion is a lot of what we saw in the early 2010s, there was a lot of global social upheaval around that time. You had the Wall Street protests against the 1% or 3%. Some of that kind of led into a tech clash of, hey, there's folks in technology companies and businesses who are controlling our lives or imposing certain rules or regulations or restrictions around what speech we can have online. Maybe they're taking a lot of profits out of things or abusing their power, the perception of maybe abusing their power with some end users. And so I think that the things like Brexit, things like this increased schisms and polarizations in society, the haves and the have-nots over that decade led to a place where a lot of technology platforms lost some of their halo that they maybe had earlier than that, where technology was seen as something that just floats all boats. Now it's seen as, ah, there's really a dark side to these two. And, and maybe mm -hmm. for my own community, for my own issues, I'm feeling the dark side of this. And I have a little bit less goodwill towards the companies that are doing some of the tax harvesting and all of these other things that just make them like any other big corporation. So I do think that they lost a lot of goodwill. I think the tech lash came out of that as well. And, and as the world gets more polarized as it gets more controversial what speech is online and you have you know very different warring factions in society taking shots at each other it's gonna be very public when you remove content or leave it down it's gonna be a political act whether or not you remove it or leave it up and the rules that you're basing that on will be very heavily scrutinized so I think that pressure over time that schism the looking at the other side and saying ah you did something for them that wasn't unfair that biased, you're biased towards them or against them clearly. All of those things together, I think, have made society much more ready to impose regulations against technology companies, as well as feeling the need to, because maybe they're feeling like there's biases in the way speech is regulated online against them and their interests that 15 years ago were probably much less pronounced. I mean, this wave of regulation is not going to stop once it we break this levy, there will be many copycat regulations that follow on that reflect local nuances and that make this a real headache. And for those of us who've been in the industry for a long time, I think it's been an expectation that this would come. And so now we're seeing it come. And this means that all of this complexity will come along with it. And the next five years will very much be shaped by regulation much more than the previous 10 or 15 have been. So I would say just buckle up, get ready. The DSA is the first of many, and you will see many more like this, and this will become very common. There is no question that the discourse around online regulations is both complex and filled with nuances. For a little more clarity into what we've learned from Ben and Benji, I turn once again to my conversation with Tom. What would you say to people in governments who are against setting any sort of boundaries that impact freedom of speech? I do think the 
online world is increasingly resembling our real world and as a place where people get to know each other, interact, communicate, transact, conduct business. And as a result, we do need, as we do in the real world, we do need rules and standards. In a lawless and ruleless world, bad actors will take advantage. And we have plenty of evidence of that happening online. I do understand the concerns about overreach or about bias against certain opinions and groups. I think they need to be very, very carefully managed. And we should agree to only apply these restrictive speech restrictions to very limit, limited types of content. But I don't think we have any choice but to make sure we're keeping vulnerable groups, in particular children and others safe from what otherwise could be very harmful and detrimental experiences for them. And governments or lawmakers specifically, one of their responsibilities is to keep their citizens safe. And this is an area where that's just not being done effectively to date. Do you have any words of caution for regulators and lawmakers so that when putting these other regulations together, and I'm sure we'll see more crap up in the coming years, so that they don't go against uh, these democratic values? I would say be careful with the power that you're given. Regulatory frameworks like the DSA can have, can have an enormous impact, positive impact, but they're also very easily misused. Uh, is a danger of going above and beyond of what is absolutely necessary to protect the worst of the worst type of speech online. We have to be really careful that, you know, we're not letting individual biases or political agendas interfere with what is such an important uh, freedom of speech medium, the internet, that really allows everybody to be creative, to be expressive, and to really bring people together. There is going to be a temptation to, to use it for more than what I think is needed to protect people, but to advocate for certain agendas. And there may be some that we agree with or disagree with, but I don't think it should be used as a tool to, to market or to advocate for non-safety related topics. It's going to be hard to do, but that's what I think is going to create the trust from the general public that these regulations are actually working and are a good thing to do. Next time on Click to Trust, we'll hear directly from the people on the ground in areas of the world that have already enacted online regulations to understand their need and their impact. There's a huge inherent power balance that exists right now between the big tech behemoths and the everyday user. And, you know, with great respect um, to Meta for setting up their oversight board, you know, we've dealt with tens of thousands of reports and have gotten outcomes, whereas I think it was last year they had taken on something like 12 cases.